0: Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Some interesting news, uh, and and maybe not totally shocking, but at the same time, uh, rather disturbing, I think, for an awful lot of people that are concerned about workers and and the plight of workers here in this province. Uh, The Ford government has announced that uh, they are going to drop the axe on those labour reforms that were enacted by the previous government. It's called Bill 148. It was very wide-ranging. It talked about minimum wage, but it also talked about Uh, getting decent leave uh, for family matters, uh, holiday time, etc., etc. Apparently that's all going out the window. What are the implications of this? Uh, Let's uh, bring Laura Kateri into the conversation, Chair of the Social uh, Policy for the uh, Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, obviously who are deeply interested in this. Laura, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today.
1: Good morning, Bill. Thank you. This is
0: not surprising, but uh, troubling nonetheless.
1: It most definitely is. And... Just to step back for a moment, it is not um, regular policy to go back over the previous government's policies and change everything line by line. I mean, politically, this is something very new um, that's emerging, and it's deeply disturbing, especially on something that impacts 1.7 million people in the province.
0: Well, I mean, you know, I know the justification that the Premier's going to make and the Premier's supporters are going to make is, well, you know, this was a campaign promise. But, you know, all through the campaign, Laura, he said he was for the people. Uh, this bill, as it was crafted, uh, is essentially to try to get a better deal for workers. And, and it seems to contradict exactly what the Premier said he wanted to do.
1: Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's more than just the $15 an hour. I mean, they're already up to $14. i am not sure when he says scrap the act if he thinks they can roll back that wage increase. But other than that, it's things that make it easier um, to have a family. I mean, there's paid sick leave for two days, another eight unpaid, um, there's emergency leave for your family, so if you have children, you're not going to lose your job because your child got the measles. Um, these are important changes that happen that really reflect the current labor market, um, that everyone's working more precarious work, work that is either contract or part-time, and it's something that was smoothing the way um, almost equaling the scales a bit more between employer and employee.
0: Here's one of the argumentative points about this, because I know that the the Chamber of Commerce, I'm talking about the Ontario Chamber of Commerce now, uh, has lobbied for this, uh, and they applaud this, as you might have expected. Uh, and, and, and I'm a little concerned about the, the numbers here. Uh, Rocco Rossi is the president and the CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. He's been on our program many times. Uh, and he says, we have been persistently urging the government to take immediate action and repeal Bill 148 due to the compounding labor reforms which came at too high a cost to the economy. Uh, the unintended consequences, this is his quote, not mine, the unintended consequences have forced our members to decrease product offerings, increase the price of products being sold, hire fewer employees, reduce service hours and operation. Now that runs totally contrary to the report that was released last month that actually said that jobs have increased and productivity has increased and sales have increased since the minimum wage was increased. Absolutely. That's, that's data that I'm referring to right now. The, the, this is the same kind of fear that the, the other people that were opposed to this were talking about a year and a half ago.
1: Absolutely. They're still uh, chanting the sky is going to fall or it is falling. And data in Ontario doesn't show that. Uh, The only job losses that we're seeing were in August, and they're the annual ones. It's the end of summer jobs. And quite frankly, 60,000 jobs at the end of the summer for the entire province is actually pretty low. Um, The statistics coming out show that more hours are worked in productivity now than they were um, at the end of December 2017. Uh, we have seen nothing but increases since the minimum wage went up. We have seen nothing but increases with um, fairer work opportunities, you know, with someone with part-time doing the exact same job as someone with full-time hours getting the exact same pay. I think there's something that they're ignoring, uh, namely the ability to possibly pay their rent and eat at the same time with this $2 increase that they had. Um, being able to be less stressed, knowing exactly what hours they were going to work with a reasonable amount of time, a heads-up before shifts were called, Um, all those things contribute to employees who, one, are happy to be there, are less stressed out when they're there, and, of course, they're going to be more productive,
0: And the the numbers indicate that. And what what, what the government's doing here, frankly, what I think the Ontario Chamber is doing, is conflating two stories here. Uh, There were the job losses at the end of the summer. There's job losses at the end of every summer, Uh, as you mentioned, because of part-time hires that are made through the summer months. Those jobs end. And I know people that have been in that circumstance, and, you know, they were on contracts, and they understand that. But they're taking that, and they're saying the reason those jobs were lost is because of the minimum wage increase and because of all these other things. Well, that's baloney. We know that's not true, but they want to conflate those two stories to try to justify what they're doing here.
1: Yeah, it's it's utterly ridiculous, and I think, I mean, we know uh, the campaign fifteen and fairness is demonstrating the fifteenth of every month until this is actually repealed, until it's not on the books anymore. Um, they are continuing to fight for this. This is not the end of the fight, um, and definitely let your MPPs know that this is not okay, that, you know, it's impacting. And honestly, if we look at 1.7 million people in a city like Hamilton, that's impacting your neighbor, your son, your daughter, your grandchildren. Um, It might be impacting you. And it's not ridiculous to ask for you know, uh, four days before you know if you have to work. Um, People have child care to arrange for. And what is utterly mind-boggling is that, you know, they're offering this tax credit. Well, a large number of people under $30,000 aren't paying taxes anyhow. The average is $485 a year, according to CCPA
0: Ontario. For those who qualify.
1: For those that qualify, and they stand to lose nineteen hundred dollars in income.
0: Here's a guy that ran on the premise of being for the little guy. You heard that how many times during the campaign, Laura? Tons All right, of times. All right. Now, since he's become premier, he's rolling back this legislation—the minimum wage legislation. He's uh, killed the uh, the guaranteed income project. He's rolled back the uh, the the increases that were supposed to happen with social assistance programs over the uh, the next couple of months. Uh, Please explain to me exactly how he's for the little guy. He's crushing the little guy with these reforms.
1: He's not only crushing them. I mean, I think in in terms of 15 and Fairness, he's actually losing revenue by not letting it stand, because that's $2,000 a year that will not be taxed, that could have been taxed. Um, And then to go even farther, I mean, how do you call one5 increase in social assistance and we're talking a $12 increase a month for those on Ontario Works that are singles. So we're looking at people who are in the deepest poverty that will be even deeper this year because we know inflation has increased more than 1.5%. And to, to take it even farther without a dollar figure, to cancel the anti-discrimination units uh, in the province. These are discussion tables. They're, they're not costing taxpayer dollars. Um, it doesn't look like they're interested in helping anyone at all unless someone has a corporate number.
0: You and I have had this discussion you know, about real numbers here, right. and and when the debate was going on about even raising the minimum wage, so we're going back a year and a half, two years on this, and right. we heard all this stuff that we heard from the Ford government and from the the, the Chamber of Commerce, that it's going to kill jobs and grocery stores are going to close and nobody's going to buy coffee anymore. Uh, and we know that that's not true. We know that, as we just talked about a couple of minutes ago, that actually productivity and jobs have increased under that. But we also know that, yes, yeah, some of those businesses that were complaining about that, were talking about, well, we're not making as much money. Well, That was a decision that they have made. Because uh, we, we've already talked to some of the, for instance, the Tim Hortons franchise owners that tell us that they're being forced to do all these upgrades within the store and have to pay for them by the head office. Well, that's not the, jo- that's not the fault of the people that's making minimum wage at the counter, is it? It's not the job of the grocery clerk. It's not the responsibility of the grocery clerk that's working at Sobeys or at Metro that the store is saying, okay, well now we're going to have hot foods and that's going to cost us X number of dollars. They're victimizing the people that are making pennies on the dollar here and saying, well, it's all your fault that our, our profit margins are down. No, it's not.
1: No, it's, it, I think you're absolutely correct. And to take it a step further, our government, yes, Um, They have to make sure they don't implement anything that um, cripples our economy. But we've seen labor laws that were introduced have not crippled our economies. And it is not the government's job to appease corporations, to increase their profit margins, because that's what it is. None of these people have lost money over the past year. They're not losing money. What they're doing is putting the cost, capital costs, on the backs of those that can least afford it, and that isn't fair, and that is most definitely not for the people.
0: Like, and this whole thing is actually based on a, on a falsehood anyway uh, that was being echoed through the campaign. And I heard Mr. Ford say it again yesterday that uh, that you know we have to get the Ontario economy booming again. The Ontario economy was the highest economy in the, in the country. Uh, we have one of the lowest business tax rates anywhere in North America. You know, a lot of that stuff is already in place, and the economy is starting to recover and has recovered for the last year and a half. So he's actually d- doing all of this to what fix what he calls a problem, which doesn't exist. Absolutely. And that's, that's not to say everybody's on easy street. We know that. There's, but, you know, there are still people that are challenged. And, and this legislation was supposed to address some of that, and it really bothers me. And I, I know I'm getting off on a tangent here, but I mean, even this, 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 this BS about tax b- credit for these people, as you mentioned, first of all, an awful lot of people that are making below minimum w- below uh, a, a livable wage don't have to pay taxes, so they don't get the tax credit. But even if you do, you know, and I know, lots and lots of people that, that can't wait for February or March when they file their taxes to get a tax credit. They need that money on a week-to-week basis to pay their rent and buy groceries, and that's not going to be available to them now.
1: Well, I I think that is exactly the problem. And I think there is a disconnect between um, politicians, and quite frankly, they're the ones we're talking about right now, and what actually happens on the ground with lower incomes, not not necessarily only those under the poverty line, but even earning $30,000 a year. That amount does not pay for what we think it does anymore. It does not allow for any significant debt. Forget about a mortgage. You know, you might be paying off if you went to school a little earlier, student loans still. There's no vacation with that. There's no amount of money that you're going to go out, um, what we call social inclusion, Um, you know, cultural trips around the city with family members or even getting together for a dinner. And quite frankly, with the cost of housing in this city, it's very difficult for someone to live alone, pay for that, and eat, let alone all the other extras. And I think governments just do not understand. There is, um, just stepping outside of Ontario, there was a, a party leader in Quebec that just said, oh yeah, a family of three can live on $75 a week for groceries. I'm like, where do you live? When was the last time you got on <laughs> in your car into a grocery store and did groceries? Seventy-five dollars a week for three people is ridiculous. Not, it's definitely not a healthy meal.
0: Well, it's it's a matter of being in touch, and and you know the the concern that a lot of people had during this election campaign here in Ontario was that, look at you know, we're going to get back-to-back back where the the people that are having the hardest time are the ones that are going to pay the price for government reforms because we've seen this show before. And we were guaranteed, no, it's going to be different this time. This is a compassionate government. Well, I'm not seeing a whole lot of that yet. Uh, and, and you know, that's the thing I think we want to get clear here, exactly what this agenda is and, and how they're going to move forward on this. But at the same time, if the agenda is just like Donald Trump and just saying, I'm going to tear apart everything that the last guy did because I don't like the last guy, uh, that seems counterproductive to what we need in Ontario right now.
1: Absolutely. I I look at it, when I hear the word compassionate, um, I tend to cringe. Because I, I think of all the listeners out there already um, on social assistance that got a rate increase axed. But not only the rate increases, all the legislative changes that were supposed to take place this fall and before the end of the year that have been put on pause, as they say, things that would make it easier for them to get ahead. Um, I look at the cancellation of the basic income project. It's not just the dollars that they're going to be missed. It's a sense of hope because there is a level of income that is too low. And when it gets too low, you cannot pivot and make changes and change direction the same way you can when you have an adequate income coming in. Well, this and is,
0: I, I've got to jump in here. We're just about out of time, yeah. Laura. But I mean, this is the beginning of a conversation I think we need to have in this province about exactly what the direction is going to be. And I know you guys are certainly going to be part of that. I appreciate the time today. Thanks, Bill. Laura Kateri, of course, uh, from the uh, Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. You're
1: listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We are uh, about a year away from a federal election. Of course, the the autumn of uh, 2019 is the scheduled date, notwithstanding some of the rumors we've heard about uh, an early call. Uh, Let's just assume it's going to be as predicted uh, sometime within the next uh, 10 to 12 months. Well, uh, both Andrew Scheer, the uh, conservative leader, and uh, Prime Minister Trudeau are on the hustings, uh, not officially... Well, let's face it, they're doing some fundraisers, and the prime minister was at one last night, and he was trying to rally the troops.
2: This is the politics of division, of scare tactics, whether it's snitch lines or you know hijab uh, attacks. The, that kind of approach that Stephen Harper tried does not work. This idea of automatically hating something just because of who did it uh, is, is a, a weak point in politics that, quite frankly, I know Canadians are better than.
0: Uh, So he suggests he's going to take the high ground in the upcoming federal election. And I know we've heard that before, from everybody, I guess, uh, before the writ gets dropped. Uh, is it going to be one of the nastiest elections? That's what some people are predicting. Uh, well, let's ask Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, of course, uh, uh, specializing in Canadian and U.S. politics. Good morning, Barry. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. Listen, for the prime minister to claim this might be the nasty of all time, he's setting the bar pretty high because we've had some pretty v- ugly ones over the last number of years.
2: Yeah, uh, look, that's just sort of <laughs> talk to encourage his his audience. Um Look, I, I'm, I'm not expecting the nastiest campaign ever, but generally speaking, um, when people go low in terms of their tactics, and I don't think it's as natural for, uh, for Trudeau to do that anyway. I'm not sure it is for Sheer either. I think if Bernier had been there, and, or maybe uh, Harper in the past, certainly, he was involved in attack ads. but usually negative campaigns are undertaken by people who are behind in the polls. And right now, the liberals could be doing better, but in fact, they are still ahead. I'm not sure whether or not they're in majority or minority territory. But uh, I think it is unseemly for, more unseemly perhaps for Trudeau to engage in this kind of negative attack ads, the kind of thing we saw with, um, with um, Harper in his days, uh, going after people like Stéphane Dion and, and Ignatius, trying it actually with Trudeau, but not, not successfully. Um, that, in fact, it can work if, in fact, they're able to play on certain themes that the public is receptive to, uh, uh, trying to diminish... Trudeau, because he had good hair, if you remember that was sort of the yeah. tagline at the end, got a little frivolous at the time, and perhaps the whole whole approach uh, had out- outworn its its usefulness. Uh, negative campaigns can work i 'm um, not sure I think it 's too early to suggest that it 's going to be this or it 's going to be that. But I suggest that if we do see this coming up in the election next year, I, I had actually been fearful that we, were, we might actually have a, a snap election over the free trade issue if, in fact, it looked like the auto industry was going to be in jeopardy. That seems to have been put aside the last few days. But if we, if we see a negative um, a campaign, wherever it is, it's probably going to be a rough, uh, kind of a sign of desperation on the part of the people that are engaging it. It can work. I don't want to say it never does work. But at the moment, I, I, I don't think it's a strong likelihood.
0: Well, we, we, we did see a lot of that, as you're Absolutely right. And, and to your point about usually it's people that are trailing to do that, I mean, Harper actually, I, I think, raised it to an art form. Uh, and, and not just Harper, but obviously the people around him uh, going after, well, the liberals because they were in disarray and, and just about anybody else, obviously, won't care when he was in their crosshairs. But is, is, is that kind of politicking the new normal now? Because we seem to see more and more of it.
2: It can work. I, I don't want to say that uh, it's never going to reappear. Uh, I mean, I guess the dirtiest campaign, at least in terms of the federal leadership level, was uh, was with regard to uh, to Kretien undertaken by the Conservatives back in '93, and it totally backfired. Um, but we're certainly seeing instances in the states. Uh, it, it, it it only works in certain circumstances. First of all, it's only motivated by people typically that are in behind or think they're in danger of falling behind. Front runners normally don't engage in that kind of risky risky behavior. It can backfire but uh, there has to be sort of a kernel of truth or at least receptivity on the part of the uh the public that think uh, in the case of um uh Ignatius, that he really was just visiting that in fact he'd spent much of his time outside of the country and that he was sort of using this as an opportunity and if he wasn't going to win he was going to pack up and go home which is kind of what happened anyway he mm-hmm. ultimately went to uh Europe rather than to the uh, United States uh the attacks on dion i'm thinking of some of the recent campaigns where this kind of thing was used to, uh nationally uh... The uh, the attacks on uh, Dion, I think, had, it was a very credible person and a meritable person in many many ways, but he did not come off as a leader. He uh, and he was not particularly effective at English. Um, uh, if the public is thinks that there is something underlying the negative campaign, that there's a a kernel of truth there, it can be effective. Um, if it's just a scattergun approach, the fact that it's it's been tried unsuccessfully with Trudeau in the past makes me think that this isn't where the conservatives want to go and i don't think andrew sheer that's his style uh, andrew sheer was selected by the conservatives basically because he was likeable and got along with people um, uh i mean not not to say that he doesn't have other qualities as well but i think that's what distinguished him from some of the other people at the end of that campaign particularly uh compared to, to Bernier. i think if bernier had been around and sort of seen with his uh departure from the conservative party now i think was prepared to take a, a much heavier hand in terms of his approach it, uh, uh, again, I'm I'm kind of fudging on the answer to your question because I don't think we have seen the end of negative campaigns, but they certainly don't always work. The one truism usually is that they're undertaken by people who are fearful that they're they're going to lose if they don't try it, and it's frequently a desperation tactic. But occasionally, occasionally it, it can be effective.
0: I, I agree with your assessment of, of Andrew Shear. I've never met the man, but just uh, seeing him, you know, for the last year as the leader of the party. He he doesn't seem comfortable in that role. I don't mean as leader, but I mean as as an attack, attack dog, as yeah. as an attack guy. He I, and I know Harper was was very comfortable with it and and obviously used the, the, that tool very effectively. But don't you think that when when Stephen Harper finally stepped down and and when ron Ambrose, for instance, was the interim leader? Uh, The party tried to rebrand itself. I remember, you know, I know she said it tongue-in-cheek, but Ms. Ambrose was making a speech to party faithful at a convention and said, uh, you can like us again. The big, mean guy is gone now. And I know everybody laughed about that, but I think there was an element of truth to that, that they just said, we don't want to be branded that way anymore.
2: Well, see, they're also, apart from attacking leaders, um, negative campaigning can be used in sort of targeting unpopular groups. I I was fearful, I'm not so much at the moment, that the immigration issue um and people illegally crossing the border might be an issue that resonates and that if the conservatives were desperate ap- apart from whatever attacks they might make on on the persona of Trudeau that indeed they might go after other subgroups like that and try to use that effectively i'm not sure that's the conventional notion of a, an attack ad but it certainly is an ad that would be an approach That I think would be harmful to the fabric of society. Goodness, when we see what's happening in the States just overnight, true to Trump's speech last night. Again, I'm not a fan of uh, Trump has come across And other times we've chatted about this. But um, the negativity that we're seeing down there um, is is really scary. And I really hope it's not just happening in the States. It's happening in much of the West, Western Europe as well. Uh, I'm really fearful that indeed um, our politics might take a turn for the worse if we start going after minority groups and people that are vulnerable. And there were elements of that, I think, in the Quebec campaign, and there may be elements of that in the uh, policies of the new, uh, the new government uh, uh, you know, in Quebec under this, uh, the CAQ. Uh, so when we talk about negative campaigning, <laughs> there's that aspect to it, too, sort of demonizing segments of society that are perhaps less popular.
0: But yeah, I you're right. I mean, obviously, we've seen what's gone on in the states and and the, some of the elections, the more recent one in Germany, uh, it got pretty ugly and very personal in many ways. It, is it inevitable then that it's got to seep into the Canadian pol- political scheme?
2: Oh, certainly not inevitable. The irony is that we're one of the few countries that doesn't seem to have had experience of um, negativity toward uh, toward uh, minorities coming in, particularly uh, in the refugees category. Part of it, of course, is the fact that, compared to most Western industrialized countries, we're relatively immunized because of geography. We do not have a. We're almost unique. Among Western countries, and not having a border, or at least easy access from a country poorer than ourselves. We've got big oceans between us and Asia on the one side, us and Europe and Africa on the other. Um, and that's part of the reason that this has not resonated so much because we haven't had that many uh, people coming in claiming illegal status, particularly poor people. When uh, refugee claimants come to Canada, they basically landed at Pearson Airport. So they've got to have at least enough money to get on an airplane. And as a result, they're, they're somewhat more middle class, probably better educated. Um, so again, I, I, I don't want to suggest it can't happen in Canada. I think there are some unique characteristics about Canada, especially our remoteness from poorer countries, that that makes the the claim of large numbers of refugees um, less less likely to occur. Now, now, if if there's any coming in, they're coming in from the states, ironically, because of the fear that they have of being able to to, to stay there. But um, it this this phenomenon of hostility toward outgroups is something that that certainly. Uh, tra- transcending much of the Western world in Europe as well as the United States, and I I just hope it doesn't doesn't occur here.
0: But if if you're trailing, or if you want to win the next election even, I mean, you know, we don't know what the polls are going to indicate right now. I mean, the liberals, I guess, have had a a a relatively decent lead for the last eight or ten months here, but do you need a wedge issue? Because, let's face it, Barry, a lot of people just don't pay attention to policy. I mean, you know, you start talking about GDP to somebody, and their eyes are just going to glaze over, but if you get a wedge issue, that that gets them going. That seems to wile people up, and and that seems to be the modus operandi for for a lot of politicians these days, is to find that issue.
2: The Conservatives right now seem to be, based on the nanos polls that come out weekly, seem to be in the six-to-eight-point range, a lead over the uh, Conservatives. That would probably give them government the most seats. It's not clear whether it would give the majority. It might. But if the Conservatives get desperate, and we'll see, I don't think it e- would come easily this year. But if the Conservatives get desperate and need a wedge issue, that could be one that's effective, and that's certainly something that Bernier was talking about, and it seems that a few others in the Conservative Party were talking about. So if the Conservatives are in the, we're projecting ahead, because it looks like it'll be next October when the election occurs. But I, I wouldn't be totally surprised if this kind of issue came out of the bag of tricks the Conservatives had, and I think that would be unfortunate if it was. But it would be, you know, political... I don't want to say just desperation, but political uncertainty and fear that would
0: motivate it. But if you make it personal, which you know the politicians have done in the past, and we've seen some of those attacks you mentioned about you know, Trudeau and the hair, uh, there are people out there that just don't like Justin Trudeau, but they probably didn't vote for him the last time, they're not going to vote for him this time. So you're really singing to the choir here, aren't you?
2: That's right. Yeah, it's a matter of what will motivate Wedge. You know, the, the, the people that are strong liberals or conservatives are probably not going to be moved by these sorts of things. But they're, you know, if the margin is only six to eight points... Or it may be closer. Who knows? But if in fact it's like that, I could imagine some people in the Conservative Party might suggest to to uh, Sheer. I don't think it, it would be natural for him, but you know, winning is what politics is about. That it, it, under those circumstances, anything is possible. And uh, it's it's a different take on negative voting from uh, what we started out talking about, which is sort of attacks on the leader. Uh, but that 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 is something I'm fearful of, and and but by goodness, it, it's certainly happening in so many Western countries that uh, in Europe where uh, like Sweden for example where the uh what they, they it's called the Democratic Party but it's the right-wing uh, anti-immigrant party there uh, Sweden would have been the last place I thought that this kind of thing would resonate, and in fact it has. Sweden's a country that's been much more generous to refugees than just about any other on a, on a proportionate basis. Um, so I don't think we should, can close our eyes to the possibility, I guess
0: that's all I'm saying. How, how do we rationalize, though, the, the, the disconnect here? Because time and time again when they do surveys, uh, the overwhelming majority of people will say, we, we don't like attack ads, they think we think they're awful, they're, they, we, they have no place in our political system. But as you mentioned, and, and the numbers seem to indicate, they work. In other words, you know, we may not like them, but we seem to be listening to them, and they do seem to sway us in some way.
2: Oh, no, I, I understand why it's politically correct for most people to suggest that t- attack ads are inappropriate and not useful. They, it's not that they always work. They can work. Um, and uh, they also can backfire. But if you're behind in an election, that's when you're more likely to be motivated to take a chance. That election, that that dramatic election of '93, where there was those uh, people were basically uh, in the ads were making fun of Jean Chrétien's hearing impairment because he he talked out of the side of his mouth because he had poor hearing in one year and he wasn't probably the most telegenic of political candidates anyway. Um, and in fact, it totally backfired. The Conservatives were reduced to, uh, to two seats as a result of it is the most dramatic loss for a major party in Canadian history. Uh, so it's not that they always do work. It's just that they're sometimes tempting to use on the part of people who feel that if they don't try something, they're going to lose the election in any case. That's, that's the, p- the problem. If the election's close, um, I'm hoping that it, they won't resort to that. They'll use more positive approaches. The attack on immigrants, um, it's something that could, uh, you know, the reason uh, you know, I brought it up at all, it's something that could be used if, because there are elements in the Conservative Party that think that they can perhaps we, um, bring over a few people who feel that the, uh, the immigrants and refugees are going to take their jobs. People that are economically insecure, and that's the segment of the population that's in the states that seem to make the difference in tipping Trump over into an electoral college win. Uh, these were people. Many of them don't even vote in normally. But people that found that in the states that uh, they were fearful of the um, of the way the economy was changing. They were fearful that there was uh, they felt unrestricted immigration into the U.S., which wasn't true. But the perception can become the reality. It can it can work, and it can could be employed here. Um let's let's hope that that's not the case at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, but we saw vestiges of that in the last election with the snitch lines being proposed and things of that nature and and it did resonate in some circles.
2: Yeah, uh, I'm not sure it ultimately did. Again, I think it had some impact in Quebec. Ironically, it was the NDP in Quebec that was particularly hurt by the fear of uh, people wearing uh uh niqabs ni- 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 and uh, various uh I- I- wear that restricted their their appearance that that became an issue here it's it's ironic that there were they were people i think largely in the party québécois that were attacking uh, people voting ndp ultimately the winner out of all of that at least in the québec vote part, part of the federal vote were the liberals who actually had policies not all that different from the ndp but they weren't the ones that were most closely identified with it in the ads um anything's possible anything's possible it shouldn't be thought that uh, attack ads necessarily work but that in some circumstances they can work and that, indeed, it's people that are politically in relatively dire and desperate circumstances that are inclined to use them. But uh, this, is, this has certainly been the, uh, the M.O. Of, uh, of Trump in the States, and it's the M.O. – it's not just the U.S. – it's the M.O. of a lot of third and fourth and minor parties across Europe. We're seeing it in Italy, we're seeing it in Holland, we're seeing it to a certain extent in England explaining the, uh, the Brexit vote, um, it, it is out there, it could happen, and we shouldn't shut our eyes to the possibility.
0: But the reality here is there's no shortage of issues. I mean, if you wanted to run an issue-oriented campaign, you got a lot, a lot of fruit to pick from there.
2: Yeah, and uh, in a lot of ways, things haven't worked all that smoothly with regard to the, the pipeline, uh, with regard to uh, certainly the cap-and-trade aspect of the environment, um, the electoral reform. These are all issues that, in fact, the federal conservatives have stubbed their toes on. The economy's not bad, though. Uh, and they have only had one term in office. What we saw provincially with the Liberals is they frankly just been around too long, and uh, what had seemed a pop popular The fact is that um, that uh, Kathleen Wynne had won quite handsomely four years before, and but people just got tired and they felt it was time for a change. Frankly, that's what happened in uh, in yesterday or Monday's Quebec election as well. It was time for a change. But there, it's, it's the uh, a whole new party system is being introduced. Uh, the CAC, a party that hadn't even existed ten ten twelve years ago, is now the government. Um, we've seen in Ontario. We've at least seen the same parties, but very much reconfigured. The Liberals, that were dominant for much of our time in power for 15 years, reduced to a rump, not even having official party status. People are prepared to uh, to vote for change. Um, one of my favorite uh, slogans. I'm sure I've used it in the past on on your program. That governments are defeated, not elected. What that means is that elections are about the incumbent government rather than the opposition. And if they're, they're prepared to give new people a chance, I think that's what happened with uh, with Trump in the states. But it's certainly what's happened with the CAC in uh, in Quebec, and I, I guess with regard to the move away from the Liberals uh, in Ontario, that people um, at some point the familiarity breeds contempt, and that after you've been around for a while, people want change.
0: But it's so bizarre when that does happen, and you know Ontario's examples is bang on. Uh, but we tend to go to extremes. In other words, we're going to throw the bombs out, but then we go way to the other side of the political spectrum. I mean, they did that in Alberta, obviously, when, yeah. when the Conservatives finally got defeated. They went an NDP government. I mean, 10 years ago, Barry, if I said that's going to happen, uh, you know, you would have said you're nuts. I would believe it, yeah.
2: No, I mean, there was a fluke. I mean, that was partly, in the Alberta experience was partly assisted by the fact that the, the right-wing party split into two, and they aren't again, and I don't think the NDP is going to stay in power as a result. The NDP victory in Alberta was clearly a fluke, but it was a fluke that was basically precipitated by the, the conservative. Uh, conservative splitting. Uh, the reason I started talking about these provincial examples, though, is that because the federal liberals have only really been in by next October for four years. And normally governments are given, there's exceptions, but normally governments are given a couple of terms in office before they're thrown out. If they do well, they may stay for longer. Uh, the liberals had been reasonably powerful in Quebec and certainly in Ontario, where they've been around for 15 years. My hunch is that going into the next federal election, that was sort of the starting point of our conversation, uh, that the liberals are the party of advantage. It doesn't mean they can't blow the election. There may be an issue that will come up because, in fact, the the policy agenda of the liberals has not been all that effective in power. They really haven't gotten their act together. But the economy isn't bad, and I'm not sure there's intense hostility. But, goodness, if there's uh, claims of all sorts of illegal refugees crossing the border, all sorts of things could, in fact, or if the economy does start to turn south, Um, we're we're certainly going to see problems with the, the, the dairy sector is not a huge part of our economy, but there are people that are probably starting to grumble in that sector, and perhaps in other sectors as well. Things can change. A lot can happen between now and next October.
0: Absolutely. Barry Kay from uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. Always a pleasure, Barry. Thanks for Thank this. Thank you. Bye for now. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast
1: on 900 CHML.
0: Uh, there are concerns being raised, and I think some legitimate concerns are being raised, now, but we uh, reformed to the way we teach certain subjects. Now, we mentioned the other day that, uh, unbeknownst to an awful lot of people in this province, uh, the uh, provincial government has already started Uh, their consultation process about the sex ed curriculum, and they have also announced that they're going to broaden that discussion to not just sex ed, but also to math and a couple of the sciences that uh, they want to get into, Uh, which probably is not a bad idea. I'm not so sure that should all be done at one time, but there needs to be a discussion about math because the marks are continuing to go down. And it raises the question in some circles about whether it's even being taught properly or the kind of math that's being taught. I want to bring Andy Kidder to the conversation here with the uh, People for Education to try to get some clarity on this. Andy, thanks for joining us. I appreciate the time today.
3: No problem.
0: I'm I'm trying to sort all this stuff out here from what we're seeing. And a lot of data here from every province, including Ontario. And and some of it's not encouraging. But what's making it a little difficult to understand is that some of the political bombast that's being attached to this data. And, and I think it's clouding the issue a lot.
3: Well, I think that's a Fabulous point, and we have to watch that. I am, ironically, right now at an education conference that's run by the Canadian Ministers of Education people. We're just talking about math. You know, and the guy who was just talking about it, who's an academic and an expert, um, said we have to be careful about how we react, even to scores. It is important that we look at them, it's important that we look at the data, but that it, for him, it was important that we look at who's struggling, where are they struggling, what parts are causing the issues in this. And there are other people who've looked at, you know, if you look at how Canada does overall, and Ontario, the 15-year-olds in math inter- comparing internationally, we actually do really well on the, the plain old math that we think of, the, you know, memorizing facts, and not so well on the complex part. So my, my worry about all of this, and I am not an expert on math, so I'm not going to have an opinion on we should teach math like this or like this, is that all of us feel we can have an opinion. Uh, A lot of it is driven by politics. And we have to be very, very careful that we're not just swinging back to the, well, when I was young, we did it like this, um, as if that's the answer. And, you know, sometimes I know academics and experts can be dry and boring. But in cases like this, it's really important that we listen to them.
0: Well, and, and to their credit, I mean, you know, we've, we've started to do this, and I get that, uh, you know, because in the past when these this, this scoring system started, we'd look at numbers and say, oh, this is terrible, especially some of these inner-city kids. You know, they, they, I guess they're not very smart. And then you said no, let's peel back a few layers. Whoa. Oh, wait yeah. a minute, there's the lifestyle. Maybe these guys change schools every year. Uh, some of them don't eat breakfast. Some of them are latchkey kids. And those are all factors, but we didn't take that into consideration when we just look at raw data.
3: No, and we have to remember, for example, using your example, but, uh, that newcomer kids in Canada, in Ontario, actually do better than Canadian-born kids. So we, we even have to watch when we say it's this kind of kid that struggles or this kind of kid, there is a tendency for people to go, oh, I don't know if I want to send my kid to that school. There's so many immigrants, and it's like, let's remember Do better than Canadian born kids. Um, it just in case, you know, because it's important again because we have a tendency, uh, to sort of go with our instinct or to make assumptions about what works and what doesn't work. And the guy who was just making this presentation said it's really important to remember that math scores are going down in all OECD countries. Yeah. So, you know, he said if we just stay where we are, we're going to be number one soon. So there, there, there is an issue with math. I'm not saying there isn't. But we have to be careful uh, that we don't get hysterical about one aspect of education, and it's just one, um, and and do some kind of big pendulum swing back. Because what the evidence is most strong is that it's all those things that we don't count that actually are more predictive of whether or not you're going to go on to be successful. So that they, all the things we're not measuring right now, can you collaborate? Can you communicate? Can you... Uh, you know, empathize with other people's uh, beliefs or opinions. Uh, can you, uh, you know, regulate your emotions? Uh, can, you, can you solve complex problems? Those are more predictive, even than your math score, in terms of whether or not you're going to go on to be, you know, successful and go on to secondary education or be successful in, in jobs,
0: there's the politicizing of this, but I think, you know, if we're going to look at at, at solutions, uh, I think parents have to look in the mirror, too, and say, look, at, maybe in, in some small way we can be part of the problem here. I, lo- I want them to be a part of the solution. But when we see our, our kids, you're a parent, I'm a parent, I mean, when they when they struggle, you just say, well, you know what, it's it's the dime stuff they're teaching them. You know, let's go back to the basics. That's always <laughs> the battle cry, isn't it? Whether it's math or whether it's yeah. sciences or sex ed, let's go back to the basics the way it was when I was in school.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I remember, you know, one of my kids coming home and going, I have to measure the area of a leaf. And I went, you know, holy, whatever. I, you, c- you can never get that's You know, why are you doing that? And why aren't you just learning the, you know, the sort of mathematical equations about uh, measurement? But and so part of it is, you know, and parents go, oh, I can't even read the textbook or I am an expert in math and I can't understand these questions. And we we now I'm not saying change should never happen. It absolutely should. And it is really important that we're always looking at curriculum. We're always trying to understand you know how to improve it, and how to improve. You know that the, the, all of our futures rely on what we're doing with, you know, these kids that are in our publicly funded schools. But we just we have to watch our own reactions. Instinctively, as a parent, you go, "This is ridiculous," because I can't understand it. But in fact, uh, that's not always necessarily true. Now, balance, yes, and I've you know I talk to ex- people who are experts in math, and they go, you need both. You have to have the complex problem-solving uh, skills, and you do have to have some understanding of, you know, actual numbers. And I always meanly use my poor 26-year-old as an example who's doing advanced statistics at university, but she doesn't know her times tables. <laughs> and I'm old, so I go, how could you not know your times tables? But she doesn't. But her deep, Understanding of complex mathematics is is enormous. So we we have to remember that too, because really, what we want, you know, when kids go, "I'll never use this when I'm a grown up," is it's the actually uh, the understanding that you'll use when you're a grown, grown up. I mean, there was somebody else at this conference just talking about financial literacy, and it's actually understanding the complexity rather than this is what a percentage is even though that is important um you know that it's actually going to make a difference where you're you're being able able to like look at your life from a mathematical perspective and and getting what it means
0: exactly look back in my day uh, uh, I, i i'm in the same boat i mean we i learned the times tables and you know all of that stuff and 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 I learned the mat- the, the mathematical formula, okay. but I wasn't learning anything. I was I was regurgitating. I right. was memorizing and regurgitating. I was not learning to actually use this stuff. I was just trying to get by. You know, six times five. Okay, I got that. Okay, mm-hmm. what formula to apply? Uh, you know, in, in in calculus or whatever it might be. But so it's it's natural, and I'm glad to see that, that the program and the curriculum is starting to evolve. So that it's actually starting to get into into thinking. It, it, it's inquiry based learning is is the mm-hmm. term that's used it's in accurate. the curriculum. And and that that phrase seems to scare some people.
3: Well, it does, because we don't understand it, or it sounds kind of sucky. Uh, You know, it doesn't sound serious and real and like a fact. Um, But the thing that I think that we have to remember, if we think about our own lives, I'm a, you know, very old adult, we have to think about where we do, what skills do we use in the world day to day, and how do we use them? Now, I, I use math all the time, because I run an organization that does that surveys people, for instance, or I read the newspaper. So I need to understand how people are used when they say X percent of the population thinks this. I need to have a concept of what that means. It's really important. It's used politically all the time. So, But it's it's actually as adults now, and for parents too, going, okay, in my job and in my life, what do I really use? And back to your example of You know, do I use the times tables, and now that may be a good basis, I'm not arguing that it is or it isn't, or do I use an understanding of how math works? Because there are things that you learn in school that you you learn the content, you regurgitate it, and you forget it. Often it just disappears once you don't need it anymore. Uh, but there are other things you can learn in school, and this is why we've been focusing on you know, what are the broad competencies and skills that, that last that are foundational under all knowledge uh, that we should be looking at. We don't measure those, right? We're not having big hysterical conversations about whether or not we're educating kids who can uh, collaborate or take the knowledge they've learned in one area and apply it to another, and those skills last forever and that that is what we need to be sure that we're fostering
0: so how do we how do we balance those two because i have talked to parents about this over the last number of years and they've raised some legitimate concerns about marks but they're still saying well where's the textbook that says you know the the train leaves philadelphia 10 15 another one <laughs> and you know though that's real math and i said well that's, that's a component of it but you know that, yeah. that's that's all they seem to want It's just give us that again
3: but also there's not even a textbook anymore so like the world has moved very very quickly and where we we've not all kept up um, where there's no textbook for one thing for the most part um, and there isn't there isn't the same way of learning things that there that there was when we were young i work with a lot of young people who are in their 20s and 30s everybody's young to me now um but and they have an extraordinary capacity to apply knowledge in different ways and I think that so we have to watch you know we have to watch going I don't understand this so it must be wrong on the other hand we also you know it incumbent on all of us parents citizens to really truly care about what's going on in our schools to make sure that if we think just from an economic standpoint that we want kids who can work in the kind of knowledge economy, which is really different than just learning a skill that's going to last you for the rest of your life. Um, We have to make sure that we're, we're, we're educating those kids and they're not the same jobs that we had. I mean, most of the jobs, don't even exist right now. So for, for me as an ancient person to go, these are the jobs and you need to aim towards one of these. Well, half of them, we don't even know what they are. So, and it is important that we're thinking about that you know, while we're educating kids. Now, again, I am not saying it, we shouldn't care about math. We should. But we just have to watch that we don't swing really far in a totally other direction because everybody kind of get, can remember taking math and go, this is the way it should be, and this is the way I learned it when I was young, and that it's more important than all these other areas. We just put out a report today on principles. And it's like we need to make sure that our schools have the resources that they need to provide a, a, a really broad, excellent, enriched education to all students. That includes math, but it's not only about
2: math.
0: I can remember, just to put this in perspective, I guess I was in grade school, and, and math, and as we mentioned, was times tables, you know, six times five, eight minus two, et cetera, and they introduced letters into it, and it was X and Y, and, you know, what is right. X, and, 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 and I, there was pushback then, I still recall, a lot of parents would say, what is this stuff, going you know, to make the kids crazy, you know, just give them the basic stuff, and the same argument back in the 1960s, and here we are in 2018 with the same points, the same yeah. argument saying, it's just too yeah. radical for kids.
3: There was a thing called the new math, and yeah. when I was young, and parents were like, "What well, you know? What what the hell is this?" And I think that that's where you know. But what we want is we want kids who can solve complex problems, but and those complex problems can have math and words and opinions and uh, emotions in them. They can have a lot of parts to them. But we definitely need, if we look at the mess the world's in right now, <laughs> we definitely need to be educating people who can integrate a lot of different kinds of knowledge including math but also including uh, citizenship and creativity and be able to solve problems so and it's and that's what impresses me about a lot of young people who have graduated from Ontario schools is that they're able to bring all those different things to bear when they're when they're thinking about uh, solving problems or working together or you know looking at policy and yeah and and I think I think we all have to watch. I have them too. I have lots of opinions, and I have lots of opinions about, as a parent. We just have to be very careful about the things that we uh, believe in. And evidence, you know, I know we talk about living in a, you know, post truth age or a, that there's such a thing as alternative facts, but there actually is evidence. And we got to look at the evidence. I mean, that's why I've just been listening to evidence all morning, and it's like, these are people who've done huge studies of thousands and thousands and thousands of young people internationally to, to start to really get at what works, what makes a difference.
0: I, I know you want to get back to the conference, and I really appreciate this, but I, one other question I just want to get into for a couple seconds here, because in all these reports and all these political statements I'm hearing about this, this is a topic that I don't think anybody's addressing to the extent they should. Are we equipping our teachers with the proper tools to be able to teach this stuff?
1: Well, that...
3: But that is a good question, but it's not just about math. So, again, complex world, whole different kinds of jobs, different kinds of skills needed. So are we equipping teachers enough? Are they just learning, you know, very narrow content knowledge or how to make a lesson plan? And is that enough for all of the complex skills that are needed in today's world? And I think that that is something to look at. Now, what happens is we end up having this very narrow conversation is are we equipping teachers to teach math? Well, we have to be equipping teachers to teach a hell of a lot more than math. Um, and we are, I mean, we have great, tea, you know, overall Ontario has a great education system and our kids do really well, but we have to make sure that teacher education keeps up with uh, where the world is. And I, I do think that that's something that needs to be looked at. But we also have to make sure then that there's time and resources in schools so that teachers have time to collaborate with each other and to learn more in different areas and not just get in there and kind of uh, drive curriculum
0: through. Because that's the concern. I mean, I know there are some people that want to point the finger and say, you know, we don't, well, the teachers are lousy. They just don't get it. Uh, the teachers are only as good as, as, as what they're going to be giving us in the way of tools mm-hmm. and information. And, and and do we do enough of that? Is there enough reevaluation of of what they're doing? I, and I know they take courses through the year and in the summer they don't all just run up to the cottage. Uh, they, they, they do try to improve their lot but uh, is, are, are we giving them enough for them to be able to do that?
3: Well, I'm not sure, and I think that that is where – I mean, I, I would argue one of the things we're not giving them is enough time to actually – if you look at really highly successful teach, teach systems, ironically, teachers teach for uh, fewer minutes a day than they do in Canada or in Ontario because for quite a bit of the time – they're learning from each other. They're collaborating. They're working on research projects together so that they can keep bringing uh, new strategies and new information into the classroom. And again, you know, the the sad, terrible thing about education is nothing's black and white. There's never like one single thing you can blame everything on um, or laud. It's it's complex. And we, we, we should be very careful with the idea that there's one answer to this. I know the answer, you know, more time on math. That is one of the things that, you know, happened last year and the year before. And you go, is there any evidence that just teaching this for longer is going to make a difference? Uh, But there is evidence about... Um, you know, the importance of building a, an effective learning community in a school. And there's a, there's a lot of evidence now about the importance of all the n- so-called non-cognitive skills and that they're more predictive of success than the grade three math scores. So we ha- how are we making sure that we're working on those two? Those are the kinds of things that, that we have to keep looking at all the time. And there is always a desire for a nice, simple answer. But unfortunately, we're never going to get one.
0: I'm always wary when governments say we're going to do public consultation, and I believe that. Public needs to be heard on issues like this. But when parents start to to weigh in on this, I mean, I'm a parent, and I've got some concerns about this as well. I'm sure most of the parents listening to this do. But I'm no way qualified to to offer a a (laughs) suggestion as to what the solutions are. But the government's going to listen to that. Uh, I'm not so sure that's the group they should be talking to.
2: Well, and
3: also the worry about this, uh, like it is important that there's an ongoing dialogue about what we're doing in public education. But one of the worries is that we end up just hearing the loudest voices. So if I'm really angry or I have a really big complaint, I'm going to be loud. I'm going to go to the consultations. I'm going to write in. I'm going to let my bad feelings be known. Or even if I speak English, I can have a louder voice. If I'm um, they, you know, have a higher level of education, or know the system works, or even know that there is a consultation going on. I'm more likely to be heard. So we have to be very, very careful and take with you know many grains of salt. Uh, we consulted. This is what we heard. So this is the change we're going to make. You know, because I hope. Yes, it's important that we're having this conversation, but I hope who we're listening to is is experts, is people with evidence, is people with experience and understanding of the complexity of all of these things. I mean, the one uh, part of the con- consultation is about what are the other learning skills uh, that, that, that we need to be focusing on. And as an organization, we've done a lot of work in that area. And those other learning skills are incredibly important. And they're not They're not, um, you know, an identifiable, I need this skill for this job. They are actually, you know, these broad other kinds of competencies uh, that no matter what job you're going to go into or no matter what you're going to do after you graduate. And so... I, w- I, wanna, I hope that everybody who's responding, and you can just go online and fill in the little forms that, that nobody's going, yeah, we need to be training more kids to do X or Y. If you talk to people in the building trades, for instance, they go, we need people who can work with each other. We need people who know math. We don't need people who know how to hammer in a nail or how to put boards together. We can teach them that stuff. We need people, no matter what they're going into, with really broad skills so that they understand you know what the job is, no matter what that job is.
0: Amen to that, uh, Annie. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for okay. the time today. Thank you, Annie Kitter from uh, People for Education. The Bill
1: Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML.